Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Good morning, Real Life. Uh, delighted to be with you again this morning. I'm also uh, honored to have the chance to share the message this week as we continue through uh, our journey in the book of Judges. Uh, <clears throat> hey, I, got, I have to say, I've got a lot of stuff to go through, and I'm hoping I can get through it all before the... Uh, a lot of time is up. So I'm going to dig right in. And this week, I will start with this. This week is the story that no one knows or remembers. This week is a story that the character that no one knows or remembers. And, uh, and why is that? Because, because it's a horrible story. Uh, Got to be honest. This is not the most uplifting story to be telling uh, this week, but it's really important. Uh, it's also not exactly the name that rolls right off the tongue. Uh, this week we're talking about Jephthah. That was a good one, wasn't it? Hey, join me on that one one time. Jephthah. Jephthah. One more time. Jephthah. That was good. That's who we're talking about this time. And uh, hey, we're most of the way through the book of Judges. And if you have been searching for role models uh, during this study, you've been greatly disappointed. Uh, they are few and far between. Deborah kind of steps out. Uh, there's somebody, uh, yeah, that, that's a great role model. But the vast majority of the judges that we've been looking at uh, are not people you really want to emulate or uh, consider a role model. But what they lack in being role models, they make up for in lessons for us. Uh, and this week is no exception. The, the great lessons to be found in uh, today's episode of Judges. Uh, Jephthah, well, let me, let me put it this way, two the two main themes that I want to focus on that I'm going to zero in on uh, during this story. One, compromising to the culture around us leads to really bad decisions and sometimes great tragedies. Uh, that would be number one. Two, interconnected with that is knowing about God and believing in God is not the same as knowing God. Let me repeat that. <laughs> knowing about God Believing in God is not the same as knowing God. If we don't know God in relationship, we're going to end up compromising. So that's how those two fit together. Uh, and maybe the, the most disturbing thing about this week's uh, story, episode, is that we're not as far removed from the culture that we're going to be talking about as we'd like to think so. We'd like to think that was, that was long time ago. Uh, and maybe things have changed a great deal but the pattern and the, you'll, you'll just see the similarities. And I, I wrestled with that. And I just, I guess I invite you to wrestle with me uh, to look at how you, may be, you may, un, may be uncomfortable about things you see about yourselves today, maybe uncomfortable just looking at our culture and the ways that we've kind of given in to so much of the culture around us. So that's where we're headed. Uh, let me pray first and then we'll dig right in. Jesus, thanks for, uh, thanks for what you have for us today. Thanks for a chance, uh, even in not the greatest stories, uh, not uplifting stories, that we can still find you in great abundance. We can learn a lot about you. We can learn about ourselves and uh, help us to uh, look objectively, look with open eyes and hearts uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so we're, uh, we're continuing on in Judges. Uh, we're going to start with Judges 10.6. I'm going to dig right in. Here it is. Here's how the story begins. Again, I love that word. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
They served the Baals and the Asterisks and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Philistines, and the gods of the Ammonites. Uh, so it starts out again. There's a, anything you've learned in Judges is there's a pattern here. Uh, <clears throat> again, they went after, and it mentions two gods, plural. It says Baals and Asterisks. Uh, and what do those mean? What is, what is that? What's the context? Well, Baal worship was the primary male deity in the land around Israel in the day in Canaan. Everybody had their form of Baal, Baal dash something, whatever their nation adopted. But they all considered Baal the, the supreme male deity in their nation. Astereth, Astereths, is a reference to all the female uh, deities that they honored. Um, in another word is, is uh, Asarte, queen of heaven. Uh, so she represents the female deity around them. So it starts out plural. Like you've gone after the, <laughs> the male and female uh, gods of, your, of the nations around you. And then it goes on and lists five. Could have listed, honestly, probably could have listed ten. Because uh, there were more than just these five. So it lists five. And also you've served, you've gone after the gods of Aram and Sidon and Moab and Philistines and Ammonites. Why did the author put five gods in there? I think it's significant. Because in the Hebrew, uh, words are uh, quantitative, or excuse me, qualitative, not quantitative. It means it's not about just signaling how many. That gives a message, the number that it gives. So with the two and the five equals seven. And in the Hebrew language, seven is the number of completion. And I think the author is trying to tell us that this is, this is uh, completely selling out to the gods around them. This may be, this may be the lowest point in Israel's history. Um, so that's, that's where we find ourselves. So it goes on. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Uh, so that year, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Uh, yeah, probably an understatement. Um, well, I don't know if you saw it or noticed the pattern here, but every time Israel goes after worships, uh, the gods of the nation around them, guess what? That nation ends up oppressing them. It's a repeated pattern. They would worship the uh, gods around them. That nation oppresses them for sometimes 10, 20, 40, in this, in this case, 18 years. And God comes to their rescue, and then they do it again. So the first principle is idolatry leads to oppression. Idolatry leads to enslavement or oppression. Um, and then, not enough, uh, he uses this term, interesting term. God sold them over. God sold them over to their enemies or idols. What does that term mean? Well, if you're the owner and you sold them over, it means they got a new owner. So God has gotten to the point where he, he's saying, you're going after them, that's your new owner. Your new owner will be the idols and the nations that you serve. Uh, not great news for them. Um, so again, the judgment in this case, the judgment for idolatry is <laughs> idolatry. Um, and it's not so much that God is punishing them. 
they're punishing themselves. But God is simply saying, hey, if you insist on going after and serving the idols of the nations around you, then see how it goes for them with my hand off. Let's see how that works for your life. And they end up being oppressed and have to cry out to God, which is really his, his heart desire, is that they would turn around. Well, where else do we see that phrase? Uh, being sold over or given over? It's interesting because in Romans, Paul uses the same language. In Romans uh, 1, and I've read it before, uh, I've seen it, but this is the first time I've seen it used three different times in Romans. So in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, Paul says this. And there it is. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Then verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So three different times, three different ways, it's kind of telling us that if we insist on going after those things, then we go after, he's selling us over, he's turning us over to those things. And it starts out with sinful desires. Well, desires are kind of our heart. It's our decision-making. It's our soul. It's like, go do what you want to do. Go after your desires. See how that works. And then he gave them over to shameful lusts. That would be the physical part. Go satisfy whatever your, your physical body wants. Go after that. And we've seen the results of that. And it lists a bunch in Romans. And then finally he says, because you didn't retain the knowledge. You knew God, but you didn't retain that. You kind of went after other things. So he gave them over to a depraved mind. So here Paul's simply saying, mentally, physically, emotionally, God will eventually give us over to those things to see how that works out in our, in our culture. <laughs> well, good thing that's not true of us, right? We don't, we don't do that, right? Um, that was 3,000 years ago. That was 2,000 years ago. Um, but again, that was the uncomfortable part I mentioned. Um, do we recognize our split allegiance in our own culture? Split allegiance to the things that we really do uh, invest in or go over um, for. Uh, so with that, I have to kind of define idolatry because that's the crux of what he's saying. Um, filing the idols of those nations. Well, most of us would think of, I certainly did, uh, and in that context here, idol worship uh, we, we tend to compartmentalize, say, well, that was, that was something they did to worship like the, the golden calf or a carved image or a statue. Uh, it was actually just giving religious worship or sacrifice to something. That was idol worship. And it is, but it's not a complete picture because idol, an idol is really anything, anything that gets in the way or competes with us for God's allegiance things that we put equal to or even ahead of God, that becomes an idol. Um, I'm going to date myself here, but anybody in the audience know the name Winky Prattney? Anybody out there? I I got one in the first service. I think my wife knows. Okay, there's one. Um, Winky Prattney, he was an evangelist back in the 70s when I was in college. And I loved listening to this guy. He had a lot of great things to say. Uh, From Australia, which is also great to listen to somebody with Australian accent. But uh, not the point. <clears throat> Here's what Winky Prattney said about this. He put it this way. Your God is the one person or thing that you care most about. 
your God is the one person or thing that you give the most time and attention to. Your God is the one person or thing that you depend on to make your life full or complete. And your God is the one person or thing that you would rather die for than live without. It's either Jesus or it's something else. Ouch. <laughs> Put it in those terms, and we, can't, we just have to face those things in our own culture. Uh, what are the idols of our culture? I, uh, I listed five, kind of like they did in this. I could have listed ten. But I listed five just to chew on, to think about. Are these things things that uh, compete with us for God's attention uh, that we put our allegiance to. And before I go through these, wealth, career, success, pleasure, uh, self, none of which are bad on the outside. Uh, They can be great things. The problem is an idolatry occurs when they become the thing that we are obsessed with, that we care most about, that we depend on to make our life work. Um, Then it becomes an idol that competes with God. Uh, a little, uh, Another principle here. The things we idolize, we depend on, and they end up oppressing us. Uh, I'll give you my example. Uh, just, uh, I, I deal with this all the time. I'm sure we, each of us can find something in here. Well, let me just say, you know, wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth itself. Uh, the Bible says the love of money is a root of a, a lot of evil, all evil. Uh, so it's not money, it's the, the greed, the obsession, the dependence on gaining or, or having wealth uh, that's a problem. You go on, career, success, the same thing. Uh, when it gets to the point where it, you're harming your family or your health because of your pursuit and your dependence on your career or success or, or pleasure. We could spend an hour talking about pleasure here. Um, everything from sports to gambling to the whole entertainment industry, whether it's movies or uh, music or the gaming industry, video games, uh, certainly the whole pornography industry, all of those feed our personal, physical desire uh, for things. And it, in short amounts, and <laughs> certainly uh, not all of them are destructive, but if, if they become the focus and a, of our attention, and again, we depend on them, they can be. Self. Self may be the rising, in some ways, to the top in our culture. That it's all about self. How you identify yourself, that's the most important thing. There are people that would die on that hill. Uh, considering what the, how they define themselves, maybe more importantly than how God defines them. Where they find their identity, their worth, their purpose in who they say they are versus what God says they are. And how they can follow God to do that. Um, so those are, uh, those are a few things there. For me, I'll just give you an example. I'm at that age where uh, I'm nearing that retirement period in my life. And obviously I'm thinking, do I have enough money? What have, I, have I prepared enough for this? All of that's good process. It's good stewardship. It's right. But it, it can certainly dominate my time and attention. How much time do I spend looking at my, do I have enough? Is this enough for me? Am I, do I start to depend on my retirement plan or my medical plan to, okay, now I'm okay because this is good enough now? Uh, it starts to take the place of, do I, or do I really trust that God's got me? That I can trust God for my retirement years just as I should for every other year. 
So for me, I, I experienced that in, in the wealth part, in the retirement part, comfort part. Uh, is that competing for me uh, with, with God for my allegiance? Well, <clears throat> there we are. We're going to return to the story. Uh, that was a long kind of side trail, but I think it's really important uh, as we look at the rest of the story to have that in our minds. So we'll go down to Judges 10, 10, 10 to 14. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Midianites... Oh, look, he listed seven. (laughs) When those seven nations oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me again and serve other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Uh, let them save you when you're in trouble. So here they cried out. They admitted they were wrong. We sinned against you. Rescue us. But just being sorry isn't enough. They cried out to God, but he said, you just want me to rescue you. You're not willing to change. Are we willing to put away the things that get in the way of our relationship with God? Are we willing to give up our allegiance to the idols of our culture so that God can move in our life? Or are those going to be competing forces? And God's just kind of saying, you, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't, I, I'm not going to just rescue you again. Um, well, it, it turns better. Because finally, they did what they needed to do for God to respond. And yeah, Good lesson for us. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us. But then they add... Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So they turned, which is a great term, because turned is really the definition of repentance. Repentance is not just being sorry for what you've done or crying out to God, hey, I've sinned, rescue me. Repentance is saying, I've sinned, and I'm going to turn my allegiance to you. I'm going to put away the things that got in the way between you and me so that I can serve you. That's what true repentance looks like. So God responds. He said he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So who, who's the character? Who is God going to raise up? What great character will God choose to rescue Israel? And here's Jephthah, the bio, uh, the, the, bio the resume. Judges 11, 1 to 3. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Well, right there you can see he's, he's a mighty warrior, apparently, a son of a mighty warrior, and he's must be a leader because even when he's cast out, he has people that follow and gather around him. A group of scoundrels, great term. So that's the person. And you kind of think, well, why did God could have chosen anyone? Why did he choose this guy? And I think God had a real purpose in mind. He chose Jephthah, I think, because he wanted to demonstrate his, his grace. He didn't choose somebody that could do it for God. He chose somebody that he could do it through. Uh, regardless of their flaws, regardless of their situation. And secondly, 
God has a great heart for the outcast. God will always use and serve and go after the outcast. That's God's heart. Um, if you look in the book of Matthew, the first chapter, first thing Matthew does in his gospel of Jesus is lay out the genealogy of Jesus. What is the line of people that, that uh, led to David and then finally led to, to Jesus? Who made the cut? Who, who did God put into his family line from David all the way to Jesus? Well, I'm just going to point out two. There are more than that. There are four significant and then four significant women that God highlights or Matthew highlights here. One of them was Ruth. Ruth, we, uh, we studied just a couple of months ago. Ruth was a Moabite. And a Moabite was an enemy of Israel. They were an outcast. Uh, the book of the law said any Moabite couldn't even enter the assembly, couldn't be in the temple for 10 generations. They were severe outcasts. And if we remember the story of Ruth, God chooses her. God says, I'm going to put you in my family line. She ends up marrying Boaz, uh, who takes her in, cares for her, and they have a son. Well, guess, who's, guess, who's mother, uh, guess, who's, guess who Boaz's mother is? Boaz in that story, the great hero of Israel, his mother was Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Do you remember that story? When the Israelites are getting ready to invade the land, they send spies, and Rahab harbors them, hides them, keeps them safe, and as a result, they spare her. She's the only one, her and her family, the only one spared from destruction in, in Jericho. So God chooses Moabite and a prostitute to be in their line. I think that's, that's the nature of God. And I, I, that's what I want to choose to look at in this story, above other things, as we go on. But that's the heart that God has for the outcast. Well, it goes on. Now they have to implore Jephthah. Judges uh, 11, 4 to 7. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Does this sound familiar? <laughs> it should, because this is exactly the conversation with these elders had with God. God, we're in trouble. Come rescue us. But they're unwilling to change. Uh, now they turn to Jephthah and say, come rescue us. Be our commander. And he said, didn't you hate me? Didn't you drive me away from my father's house? And now you just want me because I'm a warrior. Same, what was missing? Their willingness to change their position, which is exactly what happens in the next verses. The elders of Gilead then said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. <laughs> You can't have God's rescue without his rule. That's what God's trying to demonstrate. You can't simply ask God to rescue you unless you're willing to give him rule, unless you're willing to have your allegiance with God. Uh, that's God's nature for us. You can't have Jesus' rescue without his rule. I tried that. I don't know if any of you have. I loved the idea of Jesus when I was a senior in high school being my savior, 
rescue me. Give me a new life. Give me a clean slate. But I was a little slower to pick up the idea of him being the Lord of my life because I wanted to call the shots. I love the idea of being saved or rescued, but I kind of wanted to run things from then on. I'll get more of that as we get to the end of this, but (laughs) I don't know if that says anything to you, but uh, that's where I came from. Um, Well, so they give him rule. They give him the promise of ruling if he'll come with them. And the first thing Jephthah does is diplomacy. And uh, long story short, sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he rebuffs them, and they end up having to go to war. So this is where it... uh, It's where the battle commences. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. And whenever you see that phrase underlined there, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. This is a way of saying, whatever happens now, it's what God's doing. Not what this person's doing for God that counts. It's what's God doing through that person. When the Spirit of the Lord comes on somebody. Uh, So, he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Then verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. <laughs> it gets worse. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child, except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. The question is, why did he make that vow? But then it gets almost worse hearing her response. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went to the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her just as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. That is a hard story. You know, there are commentators, commentators that would try to spin this differently and say, well, he never intended it to be his daughter. That was, that was a horrible, unlucky thing. But I think if we understand the story well, we realize, no, that was his intention all along. First of all, in that culture, people didn't keep their animals in the house. So when he makes a vow to the first thing that comes out of my house door, he knew it would have to be a human. He was committing to a human sacrifice. The only question was, was it going to be my only child, my daughter? Was it going to be my wife or maybe a servant? But a servant wasn't likely to come greet him first. It would be his daughter welcoming him home to the sound of timbrels. Um, <clears throat> well, they, uh, why did he do that? Why did he make that vow? Because it was the practice of the nations around him. It was common for people to offer their children as burnt sacrifices to appease a God around them. Detestable to God, though. God had made it very clear in Deuteronomy. He wrote this. It's written. Be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? 
we will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they all do, or they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So he was intent on doing that, even though it was detestable to God. Do we serve our God in ways that people around us serve their gods in our culture? Do we mix those two? Do we think offering things God to God the way that people around us in our culture worship their God? Is that, is that what we need to do? Well, my, my thought is here, if Jephthah really knew God, if they were in relationship, if he knew what God had already said and thought, he would never have made that vow. But he allowed the idols of the culture around him to squeeze him into that kind of decision, that kind of vow. And it was great tragedy. Um, well, again, does that relate to us? I mean, that's our barbaric practice. But friends, I have to say, in some ways, and metaphorically, do we sacrifice family uh, in pursuit of career and success or money? Do we sacrifice uh, family or, or relationships or marriage in pursuit of pleasure and affairs, other things that we're willing to sacrifice our family for that, for those things? Um, and I have to say this, and I re- I'm reluctant to because I don't have time to unpack it. It's a too big a, a topic and it's a cultural touch point. Uh, so I will present it to you in the form of a question. Is it possible that abortion is our culture's form of child sacrifice? When 600 to 900,000 babies are still aborted every year in this country, and if you take away the medical reasons, rape or incest, exceptions like that, you still have over a half a million. One in five pregnancies ends in abortion. And why is that? Again, is it possible because... It interferes with career, financially, I have to put finances above that, or just self, my right. My right is more important than what I know God says about human life. So I leave that with you to wrestle with. I just present it to you to consider. Um, But I also present it to you with the reminder that God's grace and forgiveness is above all of that. But that's something we need to look at in our culture. So, there is something about sacrifice to God, but it's much different than, than that. Here's what Romans 12.1 says about sacrifice. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. <laughs> So the only sacrifice that God's looking for is self-sacrifice. And again, are we willing to give up other things and pursue God? That's the sacrifice that God looks for. Jesus said the same thing when he was with his disciples. Matthew 16, 24, it says, Anyone who wants to follow me, be my disciple. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Then we can move on. Then we can have a relationship. Then life will work. Um, so that's the kind of sacrifice that, that God is pleased with. So how does idolatry, we're going to wrap this up, how does idolatry creep in? 
what is it that causes us to give in to the idols of our culture? And it, I'm going to list two things. Uh, kind of touched on them before. But one is when faith is reduced to what we believe about God versus a relationship with God. When faith or belief is reduced to what we believe about God versus having a relationship with God. Um, again, Thad mentioned this uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. He said, when you look at the word faith or belief, insert the word trust because it makes it easier for us to understand. Because in the Hebrew, faith and belief are verbs. They're not nouns. We make faith and belief a noun, which means I can believe in something. I believe, if, if you ask people in this country, you still, still can. Most recent polls, 80% of Americans say, I believe in God. But how many of those 80% actually live out their belief in God? Um, so, Abraham is one that says, I like the way that phrases this in the Bible, in Hebrews. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. You demonstrate your faith with your feet. It didn't say Abraham believed in God. It didn't say Abraham believed about God. It said Abraham believed God. It's a verb. He trusted. He obeyed. He stepped out. He did what God wanted him and asked him to do. That's what faith, that's what belief is. Not what we believe up here. But what we're willing to live, uh, live out. Um, so again, if you know him, if you know his word, if you're in relationship uh, you'll, be, you'll be guarded from giving in to the idols of our culture. Secondly, it would be compromising or serving two gods. And this is kind of what I <laughs> referred to before when I said yes to Jesus but was re- reluctant uh, because I wanted both lives. I gave my life to Jesus as a senior in high school, uh, but I also wanted to live the college life. So I did both. I believed in God. I gave myself. I wanted to be saved, but I also wanted... I wanted to give myself to both things. Can I have both? And I was miserable. Because you can't serve two gods. You can't do two things. You can't have one group of friends doing this and a group of friends go to church. I mean, that's what I tried to do, and it was miserable. You can't have God's rescue without his rule. And when that happens, then we're guarded from giving in to things around us in the culture. Well... Then the story of Jephthah ends. Uh, final tragedy. This, I'm, I'm just going to summarize this. We don't have time to go through it. But uh, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, you probably remembered from last week if you were here, uh, they gave Gideon a bad time after he won his victory because they didn't get to share in the victory. They didn't get to share in the spoils and get the credit for what had happened. And Gideon, you know, peaceably worked through that Whatever. Well, Ephraim, same tribe, shows up again with Jephthah and said, again, why didn't you, we didn't get to share in this. You didn't give us the chance to, to enjoy the spoils of victory. And Jephthah said, hey, when we were on the other side of the Jordan, I called for tribes. You did not respond. It was only when the Ammonites, you might remember this from the first verse, crossed over the Jordan to fight below where Ephraim was. Now you're upset because now it's in your neighborhood. Anyway, they insulted him. They gave him a bad time. And they just kept, kept at him. And Jephthah, probably again, the same pattern, got prideful, got decided, I'm, 
I can make my own call here. I don't need to consult God. He didn't try to negotiate with him. He just called his leaders and said, we're, we're going to go after him. We're going to pay him back for this insult. Killed 42,000 of their own countrymen. 42,000. It lists that number. It didn't list how many were killed when they fought the Ammonites. Maybe they killed more of their own countrymen than they even f- killed of the Ammonites. I don't know. But all of that just because of an insult. And then chapter 11 ends. That's the end of the story of Jephthah. You know, I get to it and I'm going, okay, come on, where's the, where's the redeeming part? Where's the good part? Seriously, this is, this is it? A guy who burns his own daughter as a sacrifice and then he kills 42,000 of his own countrymen? But it gets worse for me because in Hebrews 11, I noticed, Hebrews 11 is a chapter that talks about the heroes of the faith. By faith, Abraham and Moses and goes on and on and David and that. Jephthah's in there. Jephthah's in Hebrews 11. By faith, Jephthah trusted God, conquered their enemies, and rescued God's people. I'm thinking, seriously? How does he get to be in there? What one thing can I even find in this story? And it bothered me. But then finally, I, I think God was speaking to me and said, quit trying to find redeeming value. Quit trying to find the thing that wins favor with God because it's my grace that counts. Not what you give to God, not what you offer to God, but what God does in you and through you that counts. Um, so my conclusion this week, my conclusion is I don't understand the depth of God's mercy and grace. I don't understand what it means to get what you don't deserve and to not get what you do deserve. That's the story of Jephthah. Um, God used him. He is in the hall of faith, not because of his character, but because he trusted God. He stepped out. He did what God asked him to do in spite of all the other things about him. Um, Well, the only thing that God asks is that we trust him, that we are willing to believe enough to step into relationship and trust that he will take care of our life if we'll pledge allegiance to him. Um, I want to end with this verse, Romans 1, or excuse me, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We already read one, but this is a different version. I love this. Great kind of benediction, if you will. It's in the message version, and I don't usually read the message, but it's so well stated. So I'll end with this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. I just love that. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. No better words could I end with than that. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. We're going to turn to communion, um, and I think it's so appropriate to end with communion. Uh, Once again, kind of fits every time we talk. 
But this is no exception because what do we do when we do this every week? We do this every week at Real Life, and it's an open table, which simply means if you trust God with your life, we ask you to remember him together with us all. But what are we remembering? Remembering it's his sacrifice. He gave his life. He sacrificed his life so that we can be free. His sacrifice is what counts. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he blessed it, said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink this, you do so to remember me. Let's remember him. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that above everything, you're a God of grace. That you have given everything for us in spite of the things that we do, in spite of the things that drag us away, that compete with us. Um, So help us to just examine how we can better serve, how we can better follow, how we can better trust you. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.